previously on Sanctuary in downtown Seattle. If I had the chance to sit down in front of them and explain them and tell them uh, what type of person I am, I've been responsible my whole life with my work, uh, with my family, um, and um, if I had the chance to, to uh, be out of the church to say directly to them, I've always been a direct person. Something that one can't really prepare for is the, the depth of relationship and how quickly um, we have become family together uh, with these people, like getting to know layers of extended family, but really getting to know Jose and uh, recognizing that, that we're connected, not just in this moment, but in, in a larger sense for what will happen. Week by week, we're telling this story about Sanctuary in downtown Seattle through the voices of the people involved. On this episode, we sit down for a conversation with some of the people working behind the scenes. Thank you all for joining me. Um, why don't we start by having everyone introduce themselves and share a little about what interests you in this work. My name's Betsy Hale, and I think what interests me is I, I have a long history in doing solidarity work that goes back to the 80s. And I'm interested in really keeping in mind root causes of why this migration crisis is happening in, from Central America. And I feel very strongly that we don't pay a lot of attention to that, that we're very focused on how hard it is for our country and keeping people out. And we don't, re we don't remember that we had a lot to do with this in the first place. I'm Chris Knazer, and uh, well said, Betsy, you, you spoke for me just now when you said all that. I've been involved in um, political activism since the 60s. And uh, I lived in South America for three years, so I was sensitive to our country's impact on those, on those nations when I was there. My name is Brianna Brannon. I am an organizer at the Church Council of Greater Seattle and we support a network of faith communities in the Pacific Northwest region um, who are walking alongside immigrant and refugee individuals and families in our congregations and in our community. And I guess what brings me to this work is wrestling with what does it mean to share the same piece of land on the same continent called the Americas and to figure out what does that mean for us to do that as, as a network, as many congregations and many individuals here in the Pacific Northwest. Great. Let's kick back to Betsy's comment about the things we overlook as a nation. Can you expand on that a little further for us, Betsy? I think in the governments that we've supported there that are military repressive dictatorships in going in and the extractive industries that we've taken, we've taken out their natural resources for our own gain. Um, in Guatemala, we were part of the genocide. We, we promoted the genocide of Mayan people. 
Um, so I think it, it goes way back, the colonialism that has, that we colonized that area and supported the people that are in, in power that, that really were not about the common good and not about the people. I would guess these are things that a lot of people probably don't know about or don't think about when making their opinions. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, and I think rather than focusing on the wall and keeping people out, we need to figure out how to make reparations in those countries so that the civil society is restored and people can live. The people don't want to leave. They don't. They, they love their countries. They love their own culture. They'd be happy to stay in their own countries if it was safe and if it was possible to make a living there. And I think also looking at being able, like the livelihood and food production and the role that U.S. tariffs, their different trade agreements like NAFTA and CAFTA and the havoc that it's wreaked, um, especially on people in rural areas who are, who are farmers. Um, I know there have been some recent articles about how this current, this current exodus of folks from Central America and parts of Mexico, that the parts of those countries where they're seeing people leaving from, it's mostly because that there have been destruction to the coffee crops and then other sources of livelihood that people have lived off for many years. So we're seeing this real connection to people not being able to support themselves. And so I, I echo what Betsy and what Chris are saying of wanting to really look at what the role of our government is over not just this short period of time, but over many decades. If we would spend some some resources of our own and efforts on reparations, as Betsy said, in their home countries, they wouldn't have a need to be leaving and coming to our, our country. So let's pretend that you get put in charge of fixing the situation. What would you do? I don't know if I have the depth of knowledge to say what I would talk to. I would talk to the people in those countries and find out what they, what their needs are and how they would like to go about reorganizing their society in a way that's more safe and just. Making sure that there's democratic governments that are in power. I think some of the refugees are climate refugees, frankly. I, I saw it, I was just in Guatemala and touring some of the coffee growing areas that are really hit by climate change now. And our policies are not at all addressing climate change. Uh, Maybe too late, but I think that's something that we need to take into consideration. I would strongly reevaluate how much money is spent on the border infrastructure and um, very strongly, I guess, redirect funds to supporting efforts on the ground in Central America and in Mexico that are supporting youth in like their education efforts and their employment efforts and then different civil society efforts that are fighting against corruption for human rights. Um, so really like looking at what are the people in Central America and Mexico fighting for and 
instead of trying to seal off every possible avenue, how do we support people who are trying to trying to live? Well, talking about the wall is is economic um, discrimination, actually, because a significant percentage of the people who are undocumented in the United States come in with a visa. They come in by air and they overstay their their tourist visa. So the wall has no impact on them. They have the money to to get a, a flight and to get a tourist visa. It's the poorest of the poor who are coming in on foot and uh, who also do all the jobs in the United States that um, we would be in bad shape without. <laughs> Wow, this uh, this is uh, this stuff is hard to think about, right? I'm sure there are plenty of compassionate people who believe what's happening here at uh, Gethsemane is wrong. Maybe not considering the entire picture is a bit of a self-defense mechanism. Why do you think it's important for people to, I guess, educate themselves and consider the entire picture? Well, our founding fathers set it up, set our country up so that education was free. And the reason for that is, is that you can't have a democracy if you have an ignorant population. People need to be educated in order to vote intelligently. And one of our duties as citizens is to educate ourselves so that we can vote intelligently, not just vote your prejudices. And I think just expanding our perception, we see one thing, people clamoring to cross the border and then all of the fear that is generated by the media about what this, this influx of people is gonna do and we don't see, we gotta expand our perception and understand why they're coming, who they are, what they will do when they're here. So really taking some time to look more critically at the issue than just what is fed to us by the media. What do you think more progressive-minded people do poorly when trying to connect with uh, other people on topics like immigration? Very frequently what happens is jumping right to swapping facts back and forth. Mm -hmm. I had a a cousin who was doing that with me on Facebook and um, unfortunately lives in another state and you know asked him like hey could we like talk on the phone or Skype or um, at least do a private message just because I wanted to know where he was coming from what was their fear behind this was their anger was there an experience that he had because um, we could have swapped facts back and forth all day and I think if I had lived closer to him, I would have invited him to come and meet some of the the folks who have had to come here seeking asylum from Central America and Mexico, just on this very human level. So I think I think a lot of times it's it's very quickly leaving like this is about fellow humans and jumping very quickly to like fact swapping. I think we forget to find our commonality and to spend the time that it takes to do that. And I imagine with your cousin, if you spent the time and were patient, you would find it, you'd, you'd arrive at common ground. 
And that's, I think we fail. We fail to do that now. We can't, we're just go down the polarized road. I wonder if people tend to agree more often than we realize. I've seen so many arguments on social media where it feels like everyone is saying the same thing on some level, but you gotta keep going for the gotcha moment and you end up missing any chance to connect and uh, have a real conversation. And how can we get out of the social media realm? How can we get in a person-to-person, face-to-face situation? I really believe that it's, it's simple like that. It's not gonna happen immediately. But over time, by building relationship, we can do it. That's what I saw this summer happen when um, folks were seeking asylum, were getting out of detention. Like I saw this with leaders at different congregations where they were really plugged in, like folks like Betsy and Chris, like they were on church councils, like first call list and were just immediately opening their homes and their hearts to welcome people. And that's life changing. It's life changing. Yeah. Um, Betsy and Chris, you both hosted people when they got out of detention. What, what was that experience like? It puts a face to those people. They're real. It's not just a label anymore. And that was certainly true as we, I think for all of us who hosted, was no longer this, these faceless people out here, but they were real. It was very moving. Um, because then we're put together with somebody, also a mother, of children, and so immediately that's such a common uh, role that we have, yet she is in one situation and I'm in another. And um, uh, just uh, knowing this woman, she just, she wants to just be united with her son, but seeing the intentions of somebody like that, so far from what is presented they're not criminals. They're not trying to take advantage of any system, just to have security. Well, I I have a mother-in-law apartment that my in the basement that my kids used when they were launching, and um, uh, so I wanted to give. This is why I didn't want to do this. My guests, that hospitality to have their own place down there. And uh, I thought after they've been locked up and treated like cattle and in a prison that it would be nice to have a calm, lovely space where they can just be and uh, in both cases the women did not want to be alone they wanted to be with me they wanted to um, spend time talking instead of be down there by themselves it's it's easy to to kind of um, hear about an issue that's going on that's reported and say oh that's terrible but then it's when it's right, when you're seeing it, when you're involved with it, it takes on a whole new meaning of, of understanding and connection with people. A funny story is 
one of my guests was uh, was the youngest person that was in prison. She was eight, just 18. I was driving her home from from the prison, and we were on 99. So you're coming into the downtown skyline and the Sound, the harbor, and so I. I asked her if her phone was charged, and it wasn't. I said, well, you know, there's going to be some really beautiful vistas coming up. Here, take my phone. You can take pictures, and then we can transfer them to your phone. And so she she takes my phone, and she starts snapping pictures immediately, and we were still in a not very attractive area. So I thought, oh, wait till she gets downtown and sees how beautiful it is down there. And... Um, you know, she snapped some more, and I thought, wow, she's really taking a lot of pictures. So when we got home, she took a, a shower, and uh, I I got my phone, and I was going through the pictures that she had taken so uh, I could send them to her, and they were selfies. <laughs> she was a true millennial. <laughs> So I, I love that because she was, she was a human being just like all the rest of us. And, and another thing that was so great was on that trip, uh, I happened to mention the first name of, of another guest that I had had. And she immediately said, oh, is that so-so-and-so-so? And I said, yeah, she's, oh, we were such good friends. Let's call her. <laughs> and so... We called her immediately, and uh, and they had a great reunion on the phone. So that was a a fun bit to have that in common. And so all those things together, it was it was a great experience. It was very human. Let's circle back around to Jose Robles. His story of being robbed at gunpoint in Lakewood, but still going through all of this to stay here. I mean, that, that really stuck with me. And in a way, I think it kind of ties, it ties in with the stories of people walking from Guatemala to the U.S. to find safety. It seems to me that something's happening. Something is going on. Any kind of civilized nation should do something. Yep. And then be thinking about how we can how we can contribute to an improved situation in those countries too, and what impact drugs have and drugs coming over the, the market for drugs in this country. And how do we, how do we keep diving into that? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my re- realizations in being in Guatemala again, and in, in, in all over Central America is the just, I've never seen such hunger for education, for basic education. How come it is so hard? I mean, what that would do to provide the opportunity for people to be educated, even public education, the fees are enough that people are too poor to pay past a certain point. And that is such a critical critical piece. I think, well, thinking about Jose and his family, he's been here almost 20 years. Like, this is the place he and his family call home. Yes, maybe he was born on another side of a political border, but this is 
I mean, this is the place where they live, where they have community. And I so loved talking to Jose one time and asking him who he was and like who he is in his community in Lakewood. And he kind of got a little grin on his face and said, well, actually like, I'm the guy that everybody goes to when they need something. Like when your car breaks down, people come to me. When that old couple down the street needed help in their yard, when someone couldn't pay rent, and I guess his wife sometimes gives him a hard time that he's always going out and about to help people. And he even said in the little the little store, they call him Senor Buena Gente, kind of like Mr. Good Guy. Um, and so just like recognizing like he's so much for his family, like he cares about his family so much, his wife, his daughters, his granddaughter, and his extended family. Like it's been fun to like hang out with him and his family here. You, they just give each other a hard time and really enjoy being together. Um, but then just also who he is for so many other people and just how much people are probably like missing him and um, just the gap that him having to be stuck here in Seattle for six months and counting is causing for not just his family, but that entire community. It makes me wonder what would be gained by losing someone like Jose. I, I guess I would think that's exactly the kind of person we want in our communities. But you know what? It's, I mean, our faith says it's, it's not about the worthwhileness of the person you help. It's about the love that you've received from God that you reflect out. So his goodness is just a bonus. That's just the icing, because he deserves everything we have to give regardless. I could not imagine being involved in this movement for love and justice without good friends and compañeras like Betsy and Chris and the many other folks of faith and goodwill. And I think that's what, this summer was really hard and we continue to walk with people in our communities who are facing the impossible. And yet there's there's a resiliency among everyone and just a lot of, a lot of It's brought us together, of, I think, yeah, in ways. And I think we tend to be an isolated society looking at our phones and in our own little private houses. And I think down deep, we all crave something more, something bigger to be part of a greater good. And uh, that's, I guess, the upside of this whole crisis is that we're, we're... Well, that's what I was thinking about when you were saying how the immigrants that you were encountering craved education. I thought, they have something that we don't have, and that is it's been all boiled down for them about what is most important in life. They've had to make the choice, the hard, hard choices. So safety, family, education, you know, are the choices that they've made when everything boils down and you have to choose. That's where they came. We have a lot to learn from these folks and I, I feel that from Jose I've spent time with him and I'm absolutely blown away by his attitude I I can't imagine how hard it would be this it's it's a pleasant space where he is 
but it's like jail. I mean, to not be able to go out and he, he is able to take it in stride and has a, just a resilience that is so admirable. And I've seen that among many immigrants and I admire it and I think of it. Sometimes in the kinds of things I get stressed out about, it brings me back when I think about these folks and, and uh, their lives and how they're, how they're taking what comes in a different way. Well, the very first meeting when Jose came here, I mean, now it seems like this isn't real anymore, this, this phrase that I'm gonna repeat. Because, but he said it that first night when we were, or afternoon when we were talking about um, our press conference the next day, and and um, uh, we were going around and and talking about why we're here and and what was the purpose of being in sanctuary, why our church was in sanctuary, why he was in sanctuary, and his answer was because today it's Jose, but tomorrow it will be Juan. Next time on Sanctuary in downtown Seattle. One of the things that I've been just the most moved by has been the outpouring of support by people with particular skill sets. One day she just asked me if I'd mind coming down and doing a haircut and I said sure and yeah then I just kind of continued and it's nice to do something nice for someone you know even if they're like a stranger. Talking to my client base and seeing what life is like in a refugee camp and there are second third generations of, of families uh, living in refugee camps. People aren't coming here on a whim and saying okay I was you know there was no vetting I, was, I came over in a month or whatever it's not like that. Sanctuary in Downtown Seattle is produced by Seekers Northwest, along with the Church Council of Greater Seattle.